that all men are created equal. Our fates are linked. Race issues are controversial, but that's precisely the reason why we need to talk about them. Hello, I'm Izzy, and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Bella, my pronouns are they, she, and I'm indigenous from the Huetar tribe of Costa Rica. We're speaking to you from occupied Lenape territory in Hillsborough, New Jersey. Both Bella and I are part of the Student Diversity Initiative here at HHS, a club committed to fostering a safe space for a diverse group of students and making our high school and community a more anti-racist and welcoming environment. Today is a special installment of Prejudice and Pride, where we are going to be discussing the Indigenous experience in Hillsborough from my perspective and in collaboration with history teachers from Hillsborough High School and the Student Diversity Initiative. This episode will not address every hardship Indigenous people have to experience. However, as a minority who is outnumbered, I will do my best to discuss my experience as an Indigenous person. Could you take us through your personal experience with Indigenous identity, especially growing up in predominantly white areas? For a long time, I was told by non-Indigenous people that due to blood quantum, which is the amount of blood you have as an Indigenous person, I could not reconnect with my heritage. However, after being ex- uh, exposed to more Indigenous voices, I feel more comfortable and confident in my identity. Yeah, so in one of our meetings at the Student Diversity Initiative, we discussed anti-Indigenous racism, and obviously blood quantum came up. And on our Instagram, it is defined as, quote, the amount of Indian blood that an individual possesses. It was created by the federal government of America to put restrictions on and limit Native American citizenship. It still has ramifications today. The Navajo Nation and the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa Indians, among other Native Americans, still use blood quantum as a citizenship requirement. So could you elaborate on your own personal experience with blood quantum, especially within Hillsborough High School and Hillsborough as a town? So uh, blood quantum stopped me from embracing my heritage for a very long time because uh, people would constantly ask what percentage of quote unquote Indian I was as a way to kind of um, see if they themselves could validate if I was really indigenous when they weren't indigenous anyway. And also blood quantum was a system created by colonizers to basically lower the amount of indigenous people there was. So blood quantum really isn't a valid way of seeing how quote-unquote indigenous somebody is. So like growing up in a white area like Hillsborough, especially within the schooling system, could you walk us through some of your experiences like as a young kid trying to come to terms with their own identity Um, especially as Indigenous, and like how, you know, the predominantly white area of Hillsborough, how that affected you? So people, you know, people see Indigenous people as kind of like the unicorn. It's, it's, it's really, it's really bad. Like, I'll tell people, oh yeah, I'm Indigenous. They're like, whoa, you're Indigenous? And then they start making all these assumptions based on stereotypes that you find in the media. For example, they're like dream dream catchers and spirit animals and things of that sort when those concepts are very misinterpreted within the medias and also not every single tribe uses those things um and as a kid i wasn't in the hillsborough district when i was in kindergarten Mm -hmm. but i was still in an area that wasn't there was no indigenous people really to my knowledge at least and um when i was younger in thanksgiving thanksgiving was like this huge romanticized version and um, we would, they would pick children to be pilgrims and Indians, and they would always choose me mm-hmm. to be one of the Indians. And it felt very, um, 
isolating. Degrading. Yeah, degrading. Yeah. Isolate. I felt... How do I put this? It felt like somebody was trying to squeeze me into a box that I didn't really know, like, I wasn't really sure of yet. Yeah. Because I knew I was indigenous and I was still trying to explore that part of myself with the limited resources that I had. Mm-hmm. But in when you're within an education system that doesn't, you know, it, there's really no indigenous people except for yourself, you often tend to feel like... um like an object instead of a person, they treat you kind of like you're this wonder. Yeah. And um, they're like, oh, wow, you like they treat you like the the whole mystical shaman stereotype that there is in the media. And it's very like, that's not how that works. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah that's, that's not, not that <laughs> that's works. not how that works. So in general, it's been very difficult to reconnect with my heritage because there's so many misconceptions about it. And once again with the whole idea of blood quantum people are like oh you you're not really indigenous then yeah. or it's just people tend to put up people who aren't indigenous tend to just put up obstacles for indigenous people to reconnect with their heritage yeah so, so like could you take us through like how you wound up reconnecting with your heritage because like growing up you said your identity pretty much was a mystery to you so could you take us through that a little bit yeah sure so um Basically, ever since I was a kid, my dad told me that I was indigenous, and um, I was like, okay, cool, but I didn't really know much about it because he didn't either. So it was a very, just kind of, I didn't really identify as indigenous because I didn't think I could. And so then I was like, let me take a DNA test, because at that point I still thought that blood quantum was something that validated my identity as as an indigenous person. And it came back as essentially one-eighth, and I was like, okay, that doesn't count, it doesn't matter. So then, um, actually, through social media, I started being exposed to more indigenous creators, and they were like, blood quantum was a concept created by the people who colonized us in order to make sure that less of us could reconnect with our heritage. And I was like, oh, okay, so this is something I can do. So that's when I started asking my family questions, like my grandfather and uh, my grandmother, and like I asked questions about their parents. And it was really difficult because we don't have that much info. Mm -hmm. Like, Costa Rica is not one of those countries that has a lot of resources when it comes to exploring your ancestry. Um, Until I basically went on a four-hour digging session. And I I literally, I dug through literally everything. Mm -hmm. And that's when I finally was like, okay, most of my ancestors congregated in the central part of Costa Rica. Mm -hmm. Uh, Specifically the town of Barva, which... um, Back in times where there was a bigger indigenous population, the Wetar tribe essentially populated that area. Okay. Um, so that's how I determined what tribe I was from, because that is the best way to determine what tribe you're from if you don't have other resources. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, so that's the tribe that I'm from. And so then from there, I kind of started exploring the culture, asking my father questions since he was born and raised in Costa Rica. And so I was finally comfortable enough to say, this is who I am. And I was finally comfortable and confident enough to educate other people about what it's like to be indigenous. Because I realized my experiences happened to other indigenous people. Yeah. I just didn't know that because I didn't have access to their voices. That's like really fascinating because it's almost like when quarantine and lockdown happened, you were sort of removed from society a little bit and you were introduced to more indigenous voices via the internet. And that's where you really first started to begin that journey which I just feel like is very telling about our community the fact that you needed 
like a break from yeah. society <laughs> to really discover who you were. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I guess the big question here for our district as a whole is what do we actually know about indigenous peoples in our history? Or perhaps a better question is, what are we taught? So when we talked to the Student Diversity Initiative about this, we received many different answers, but all had a common thread. We simply aren't taught enough, or even to be blunt, we aren't taught the truth. A student point blank said that they don't know as much as they should know, as a result of the school systems failing to teach about indigenous peoples. And even when indigenous history is taught, it is almost always in relation to white settlers and colonialism. Even when you get to advanced classes, like AP U.S. History, a student brought up how they talked about the Dawes Act, which disenfranchised Native Americans, but the student said that it seemed like it was just, quote-unquote, brushed over as a part of the curriculum. To learn and understand more about this issue of misrepresentation in our curriculum, Bella and I interviewed several teachers regarding this topic. In our interview with CPUS History teacher Mr. Riles, He talked about how, in the classroom, Native Americans are portrayed in inaccurate ways. When when we talk about, you know, Columbus is is the classic story, you know, the the cartoonishly wonderful version of Columbus who discovers a new world and, you know, is a hero is is terrifyingly different from the the reality. Mm -hmm. And as we point out to students, all you have to do is look at his own personal journals to Mm -hmm. see you know, the truth of it all. Yeah. Which, you know, kind of flies in the narrative of what sometimes they hear with some modern news sources. And certainly the Thanksgiving story is one that still the majority of people, you know, have have very much the tenderized, happy version. Yeah. Uh, there's a great article in the Ledger just uh, last week about uh, from the perspective of the Wampanoag and uh, and, and their experiences up there. And they, they don't celebrate it, of course, to them. Mm-hmm. And it was a day of you know, Europe, the beginnings of kind of a European genocide. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that, that's, that's an eye-opening statement for people who want to see Halloween, uh, Halloween, <laughs> Thanksgiving as a, you know, a, a warm, happy yeah. moment. Yeah, a lot, mm-hmm. of, um, a lot of indigenous people in North America see it as a day of mourning. Yeah. as opposed to celebration. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and that's that's a pretty accurate representation from mm-hmm. that perspective. Yeah. I, you know, it, it, it's a culture that was, you know, forcibly reduced and moved and along the way, you know, murdered. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a hard pill to swallow. You, know, you get to the, the Trail of Tears story and, mm-hmm. you know, you start to share some of the, the actual moments of the things that happen in there. And, doesn't sound anything like the heroic journey west. So knowing you for just a short amount of time, I've learned that you are a person made up of many intersecting identities. You are indigenous, Latina, Jewish, and much more. How have these different identities impacted the way you view or explore your own personal indigenous identity? So um, being Latina and indigenous is really um, the best word I can use for it is strange and kind of funky. <laughs> funky. Because Latino people are essentially a mixture of Spa- Spanish from Europe, so Spain, um, Native American, and um, African from the slaves that were brought over to the Spanish colonies. So um, pretty much almost every Latino person has a portion of indigenous blood. They're not necessarily taught to embrace it, so neither was I. We're just taught that we have it and that it's there. 
So it was really difficult because I was like, if I identify as indigenous, does that mean I disown my Latina identity, even though that's what I grew up with? Mm-hmm. It's a really difficult to embrace both because Latino is essentially, it's complicated because you want to decolonize yourself. Yeah. But also being Latina is a part of, like, is a part of who I am is what I feel because I still speak Spanish that's still the language of the land that my family is from unfortunately but that that's the language that we speak and the food and the culture that's still a part of who I am so yeah. it's very because I, I want to fully embrace myself and my indigenous culture but I also don't want to lose a part of myself that's been stuck with me for so long I've kind of tried to embrace both by simply just trying to exist as an indigenous person in a more latino realm yeah so i just try to find more indigenous aspects of my latinidad which essentially like includes uh like one thing that i noticed um when i actually when i got covid and i was sick at home mm-hmm. um there's a costa rican dish called olla de carne which is essentially a very hearty soup and I noticed that when it was yuca, a lot of starches that indigenous people would eat. Mm-hmm. So I saw it as like, I can use this as a way to reconnect with my heritage instead of having to com- completely disown that part of myself. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think like in my experience learning about the Spanish language as just as a student, because I don't have any Hispanic heritage, the first time that I really began to learn about how the Spanish language is cultivated from so many different groups, including so many different indigenous Latin American groups, um, was this year in Spanish 4, and I have the teacher, Senora Cornsman. I encountered her this year, and she really tries to immerse us in the different cultures and influences of Southern American indigenous groups. So we talk about the Incas, right? We talk yeah. about Peru and, and, and the influence of the Incas. And not only that, the influence in terms of architecture, like Machu Picchu, mm-hmm. but we talked about also the words in the language, yeah. right? We talk about how words like cancha and llama and, you know, words like that that we use in the, you know, everyday words uh, are influenced by mm-hmm. other communities. After here, we're going to move on to the South America, this this Cono Sur, and we're gonna be talking about Los Mapuche, mm-hmm. which is another indigenous group who have influenced um, the South America, and also we're gonna talk about Los Guarani. And Los Guarani, which uh, this group actually impacted greatly the area of Paraguay, that actually Guarani became, it's as it is an official language in Paraguay, the same as Espanol. Spanish language is so rich because it's really influenced by all those groups who came into contact with the Spaniards. And in each in each area also, Spanish is so different. We have different accents, but also we have different words to say. Mm-hmm. That's one thing that people are have to learn, that we come in different colors. We have come different accents. We come in different. There is not really one. We cannot really... Uh, describe or categorize all the people from the you know, Spanish-speaking country into one mm-hmm. set of characteristics. Yeah. When we interviewed Senora, I felt a lot more connected to my Latina identity than I ever have in this school because I finally got to talk to somebody who was also Latina, and it really it made me really happy to hear that she was excited about teaching about indigenous culture and that she really enjoyed it and found it really um, interesting. So yeah.
So now that we have gained a deeper and more comprehensive understanding of the curriculum and cultural issues in our high school, but also nationwide, the question is, how do we actually change it? The first thing my mind, too, goes to is obviously changing the curriculum. But how? We talked to social studies teacher Bob Fenster, and he had some valuable insight. The sad truth is that uh, many teachers haven't had themselves much education on the subject matter. And so, and th- and that's that's true about a number of categories of uh, you know of, of history and groups that that particularly particularly marginalized groups. So, if a teacher is going to make up for that, they have to do extra scholarship to to get there, and not everyone either has the time or energy or wherewithal necessarily to, to do that on in all of those categories. One has to pick and choose, and the problem is that um, in part. Teachers, again, have been taught a particular way and the structure of, of how they present material, whether it's focusing on chronological history or history through the eyes of the President of the United States. There really should be more of an effort made, and it's not just about Native Americans. I mean, there's what about disabled Americans and, and so forth? And there's many groups like that that are underrepresented that... There's no perfect formula. There's no obvious place, or there are few obvious places to do that. Um, but more efforts should certainly be made to find ways of elevating voices that are less focused on. A lot of us, and I'm guilty of this too, teach more political history than social history. And when you don't have, when you have a group of people that doesn't have like prominent political figures, and there's you know there's just a handful of of, of Native American uh, people who've gone into into politics, senators, that that sort of thing, um, it it be it it's more difficult to cover them if that's your if that's your approach. And so the solution, the same thing is true of covering women's history, is that we sometimes have to talk more about social history and look at perhaps using more primary sources, which are focused on the perspective of regular people or you know n- non-celebrity people essentially. One of the biggest obstacles to changing the curriculum that teachers talked about was simply time. One of the challenges of, uh, of kind of like a, covering a large period of time is how much time is spent on any individual portion of it mm-hmm. and, and larger impact. And often when you, when you get to issues dealing with minority groups, um, that to a, to a certain extent, that it's kind of a small piece of the larger history. Uh, it doesn't mean that the impact on those groups wasn't immense, but in terms of you know how a country has gotten from one place to another, it's just it, it can be a small piece. No subject is more hyper specific than social studies. I mean, if you actually took the time to look at the absurd number of standards, but it's like basically a standard for every day, and. Some of these subjects are things that you want to spend two weeks on. Are there more groups in South America? Yes, they are. Yeah. Just we don't have the time. I wish yeah. we had more, the t- you know, more time to go really and talk about them and, the, and their and their impact and you know what they left behind and how we are con- you know preserving all that. Time is always a problem. The curriculum doesn't doesn't really allow you to go deeper, and that's why in college you have to take advantage of those classes. While this concern is valid and understandable, authentic representation and creating a safer and more inclusive class environment should be at the forefront of our school system. There is always time to do better. So, after fleshing out the question of how we change the curriculum, 
We realize that we have to change public opinion first. But yet again, the question is, how? Well, I think first we need to make people wake up and treat me and other indigenous people as fully human. Um, what I find a lot um, in the outside areas is the fetishization and um, of indigenous women. Uh, like, for example, indigenous women, I forget the exact statistic, but are, they're a lot more likely to be um, sexually assaulted and um, essentially kidnapped for trafficking. And so um, MMIW, Missing, Murdered Indigenous Women, um, is essentially a movement to try and get people to pay more attention to the fact that there are so many missing Indigenous women out there mm -hmm. and see them as a lot, like, because they're very important. Yes. Like, this is, this is like life or death situations that we're talking about and they're being treated like nothing. A lot of indigenous parents, when they report their daughters as missing, are told that, oh, maybe she's out partying or maybe she ran away. Like, that's not like this is this is an issue. And so people don't see indigenous people as people. Mm -hmm. They don't see us as important because there's no attention drawn to us anymore, despite the fact that we were here first. In school, it doesn't get much better because I find a lot of people... I remember when in like um, probably like fourth grade, fifth grade, when we learned about indigenous people, it was taught that uh, it was taught that um, the people who came to colonize us gave us things. They made us more intelligent and gave us more technology. And I was like, our indigenous societies are extremely innovative. Like the Mayan Empire, their um, knowledge in astronomy was like immaculate. Like we, yeah, parallel. Yeah, like I we we were innovators mm -hmm. and people were like well wouldn't you want to um better your society and i was like or like your empire or whatever and i was like if people are happy with something there really is no reason to fix it mm -hmm. like i don't the whole colonizer colonizer mindset of sort of like oh you have to improve these like these barbaric people and make them better and give them more we don't we didn't need more we were fine it worked so we kept it and mm -hmm. Without the concept of um, essentially buying things or without the concept of capitalism, it, it, life seemed a lot more peaceful. Yeah. Um, so people tend to behave like indigenous people were backwards or sort of cavemen-esque when that wasn't true. And that leads into the whole thing of some people are like playing devil's advocate. I find um, a lot of majority white men that I speak to tend to say things like, oh, well, you know, we made you better. Like, when we conquered you, we made you better. And I was like, that's not how that works. They're like, without us, you wouldn't be here. And I was like, beware at extremely low populations with no one to help us. Like, I don't... You, you say that you gave us things, and one of the things you gave us was disease, poverty, alcoholism, um, a bunch of things that indigenous people are suffering through right now, which is why the population's getting lower. It really aggravates me that they're like, oh, we gave you all these things because you didn't. Like, you did not conquer me. You did not destroy me. And you did not defeat me. And I am not inferior to you. My people were never inferior to you. Like, I'm still here. Yeah, you are. Like, I don't, like, I didn't go anywhere. I'm still brown. I'm still here. Mm -hmm. Like you're living resistance. Ex exactly. Like that's the that's the 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 saying is existence is resistance. Mm -hmm. Like I have to fight to make sure that people realize that I am here and I am a person and my rights matter. 
As we work to make change, groups like the Student Diversity Initiative and platforms like Prejudice and Pride are a part of creating spaces for challenging our current world and bringing new ideas and experience to different people, which we definitely need. But at the end of the day, we can't change everything. I alone cannot liberate my people. No one can do this alone. So we would like to end this podcast with a call to action. Do the work to acknowledge Indigenous existence wherever you live and start decolonizing yourself. Work to diversify the media you consume, through social media or otherwise. Ask yourself and the people around you the questions that make you the most uncomfortable. Work to create safe spaces for Indigenous peoples to feel comfortable and speak out. And most of all, listen to Indigenous voices. Prejudice and Pride is a student-run podcast from Hillsborough High School in Hillsborough, New Jersey. It was made possible by a generous grant from the NJEA Frederick L. Hip Foundation for Excellence in Education. The show features original music by Alec Rowder and is executive produced by social studies teacher Bob Fenster. We invite your feedback, stories about your experiences with race and ethnicity, and questions for future Ask Us Anything episodes. Visit us at hhspod.com or contact us at prejudiceandpride at hhspod.com.